Good morning, good morning. It is good to see each of you, whether you are here in the building worshiping with us or if you're worshiping online, we are thrilled that you're with us. I would like to extend an invitation to those of you that are worshiping online. I know some of you, uh, maybe you have some sick ones at home or uh, you're traveling or you're having to watch this later because you are uh, working today or whatever. But if you are at home and just have not had a chance to come worship with us in the building, we would love for you to come. Uh, so we can get to know you and you can get to know us uh, and we can worship together in one place together. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the uh, senior pastor here as well as one of our elders. And uh, if we've not had a chance to meet, I would love that opportunity after the service is over with. I'll be out in the foyer uh, lobby area there and you can swing by and say howdy to me. Um, hopefully when you came in, you picked up a worship guide um, on the back of the worship guide. We actually have notes this week, so you can follow along with that. And you'll also see at the bottom of the uh, worship uh, guide, the, the scripture passage we'll be looking at next week because we're walking through the book of Acts. So next week we'll be looking at the end of chapter 9. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of our Bibles that we have. It should be one in a chair or underneath the chair around you. Uh, you can use that this morning. And then if you don't have a Bible or need a Bible at the house, feel free uh, to take that with you uh, whenever the service is over with. That will be our gift to you. As I said, we are, as a church family, walking through the book of Acts. Uh, we started this back in January. We've taken a few breaks here and there, but we're now jumping back into Acts. Started that uh, again last week, and we'll kind of barrel through all the way uh, into May with a small break here and there uh, for Easter and things like that. But today we're going to be looking at uh, the rest of the story of Saul. Last week we looked at chapter 9 in the book of Acts and saw that the Lord saved and called uh, a surprise person to the faith and that is Saul the one who was persecuting the church God radically changed his life called him to salvation and, and, and Saul became a follower of Jesus and so now we pick up the story and find out how do we get to the story of Paul and what I mean by that is uh, many of us are probably familiar with this character and we call him Paul Paul or Saul is the same person. The, the name Saul is an emphasis on his Hebrew name. The name Paul is an emphasis on his Greek name. But most of us, because the, in the majority of the book of Acts, he's referred to as Paul. And in the letters that he writes, which he writes like uh, 12 or 13 letters that are in the New Testament, he writes a, a quarter of the scripture in the New Testament. He uses the pen name of Paul. And so I may say Saul, I may say Paul, but I'm talking about the same person. So the question is, how do we get from the one who was persecuting the church with a, a murderous, threatening kind of tone into the man of God that loves God so dearly that he would be willing to do anything that people would come to salvation in the one true God, and that is Jesus Christ. How do we get to the man that we refer to as Paul? And, and what we're going to see in this text today is the beginning of that story. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31, we're going to see two narratives, or in other words, accounts of the life of Saul, some things that took place in his life. The interesting thing is, one of the accounts takes place in the city of Damascus, which is where he was going to persecute the church, and then the other account takes place in Jerusalem, and while they are, are specific about what took place in those cities, the story is very repetitive about what takes place in his life. 
And then we're going to look at one summary verse, and we're going to see how God's going to send him on a trajectory of being a follower of Jesus, a great disciple of Jesus, and one of the apostles to share the faith of Jesus, the name of Jesus, all over the globe. And so as we walk through this, this is not a, 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 an instruction manual that says point one, two, three, four, five, six in these scriptures. Rather, it's the story of Saul, and we're going to see some principles of what Saul did that grew him in his faith, that made him a stronger disciple, and then we're going to realize that if we'll put that into our life as well, we will be a disciple uh, of Christ. And so you, you may see that the sermon title is Discipleship, A Life changed by Jesus. So we're going to look at how Saul's life was changed by Jesus and how our life should be impacted by Jesus as well and therefore living out what it means to be a disciple. Let's look at the text together. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 19 and then I'm going to walk us through the uh, verse 31. It says, so for some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Basically, the gate would be the way in and out of the city, so they're looking for an opportunity to grab him, snatch him, and kill him. But it says in verse 25, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, which is Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers, the other followers of Jesus, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, which was on the coast, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, let's look at some points of some things that we identify about the life of Saul that enabled him to be a stronger disciple for Christ, and therefore, if we'll do the same thing, we'll have similar results in our life. Here's the first thing. We see that we should surround ourselves with other believers. If you want to be a disciple who's growing in the faith, we need to surround ourselves with other believers. And we see that happen twice in the text that I read just now. If you look at the end of verse 19, right off the bat, as soon as he comes to salvation, as soon as he comes to know Jesus, it says, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And then you jump forward to 
chapter, uh, sorry, verse 26, and it says that when he got to Jerusalem, he had a desire to join with the disciples. And so there's this overarching sense that Saul knows that he needs to be with the other believers. And the question is, why is he so interested in spending time with the disciples? Well, on one hand, you go, oh, he wants to be like in the in club. He wants to be with the cool people. Like he, he, he wants to rub shoulders with the influential people. No, that's not what's going on at all. Rather, he's wanting to be with the disciples because he knows that if he comes in contact with other believers, that his faith will be strengthened as well. I want us to look at a couple of the words here, and, and I don't have the Greek word written down, but I'll tell you what the Greek word means. In, in verse 19, when it says that he wanted to be with the disciples, it doesn't just mean like in close proximity or in the room with them. Rather, the word with carries with it a sense of belonging and companionship. So he wants to belong with and to the other believers. And then the interesting thing, when it says in verse 26 that he wants to join with the disciples in, in Jerusalem, the word join carries with it the idea of glue, like to be connected, to fasten firmly. In fact, the root word is the word glue. So it's much more than simply being around other believers. Rather, he has a desire to spend quality time with other believers so that he can be discipled and grow in his faith. You see, here is Saul. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. He, he knew what it meant to follow God according to the Old Testament, but he didn't know for sure how all of the scripture tied in with who Jesus is and how he's the Messiah, the promised one. And so he knew that he needed to spend time with other disciples who could invest in his life. So he was discipled by these other believers. He was encouraged by these other believers. Did you notice a character by the name of Barnabas? We saw him earlier in the book of Acts. He sold a field and laid the proceeds down at the apostles' feet. And here Barnabas shows up again. And then, and then later as we pick up the story of Paul again, we'll see Barnabas show up again. And the word Barnabas, the name Barnabas meant son of encouragement. So whenever Paul shows up in, in Jerusalem, and the disciples go, um, we're not quite so sure. Like, you just killed a bunch of Christians, and we're not sure what you're going to do with us, and we don't know if you're really a believer. We don't know if we buy in your story. And Barnabas came forward and vouched for Saul and helped him integrate into the life of the disciples. Uh, this morning, my friend Ron walked in the door, and I said, I thought of you this week when I was preparing, because Ron Rich is a Barnabas in my life that speaks encouragement and just uh, it prays for me, encourages me, and lifts me up. We all need disciples, other believers in our lives that can strengthen us, disciple us, encourage us, and we need to do the same thing for others as well. And he also had time to worship with those disciples. You see, the reason that you and I need to surround ourselves with other believers is because God made us for community. We're not designed to live our life in isolation. You know what I think happened over the last two and a half years, whenever the pandemic came in, in fact, uh, uh, talked to some folks this morning that I haven't seen since before the pandemic because they live out of town and they were with us today, but here's the deal, when the pandemic came, what happened for many of us in the United States is we began to be isolated. We began to, because of mandates or, or encouragements or from what, how, your, how your business operated or how schools shut down or whatever, we began to isolate in our homes. We didn't rub shoulders with each other. We weren't together as much. And then whenever isolation comes, it causes 
It can cause division. It can cause uh, uh, inability to really grow in our faith. We need each other. Isolation leads to problems. Whenever we are together, we can help each other obey God. We can help each other grow in our faith. We can build each other up. We need each other. Along those lines, I want to kind of make a push for you to be here on Sunday, November the 20th at 5 o'clock. We're having our Thanksgiving meal. I know some of you may already be traveling, but if you're not traveling, make plans to be here. And we encourage you to register so we don't have a bunch of cranberry. We want to make sure we have plenty of dessert. So you want to register so you can sign up what thing you're bringing, right? But here's why I want you to be here. Not just so we can have a Thanksgiving meal together, but so that we can be together as a church family and worship together, pray together, uh, encourage one another, learn more about what's going on in the life of our church, meet some of our newer members that are a part of our church family now. And this is going to be a family meeting. So I want to strongly encourage you to be here because we need each other. You see, every disciple... And by the way, a disciple is one who trusts in Jesus as their Savior. It's not some super Christian. Every disciple needs other followers of Jesus in their life. We need to commit to fully engage with and be part of Christian community. And the way that we can do that is by worshiping together weekly. I know some of us may have a job that prevents us from being here every week. I know sometimes we're sick. I know sometimes we're on vacation. But if we're in town, if we're not working, if we're not sick, let's prioritize the gathering of the saints on Sunday morning. Let's worship together. Being together is a good thing. Also, being a member of the local church is a good thing. We just had a membership class last month, and we had several people come to that. We have another membership class coming up on November 13th. If you're not a member of the church, I encourage you to come and check out that class because we need to commit to each other, not simply join the church, but lean in and be active participants in the life of the local church. Another way that we can surround ourselves with other believers is to participate in a hope group. These are our small groups that meet in homes throughout the course of the week, and we can do community together in a way that we can't do on Sunday mornings. Another way is to serve on a serving team, and, and you can serve in children's ministry or preschool ministry or worship or hospitality, and the list goes on and on. And as we serve, we're doing that in community with other believers. Discipleship, D groups, all of these form ways for us to surround ourselves with other believers. You see, as God did with Saul, he will use the church in our life to grow us and prepare us and to make us strong disciples. So the first thing we see is he surrounded himself with other believers. The second thing we see is that we need to study and apply scripture. Now, I do need to say that this is not explicitly stated in this text. However, it is implicitly stated, and here's what I mean by that. As I mentioned a moment ago, Saul knew the Old Testament. He knew what it meant to be a Pharisee. He knew how to follow the Old Testament, but he didn't know all the ins and outs of how Jesus uh, is found in the Old Testament, but he quickly learned, because if you read anything that he preaches, if you uh, read any of his letters that he wrote, we see that he weaves the Old Testament consistently in there. So what happened? Paul saw his need to begin to study and apply the Scripture in his own life. And so no doubt, 
A big part of what he did when he spent time with those disciples, especially at Damascus, is he must have sat down and said, all right, I trust that Jesus is who he says he is. Now I need you to tell me more about him. I need you to tell me more about his stories and share with me what happened in his life and in his ministry. You see, he didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a scroll to open up and read yet. It hadn't been recorded in that way yet or that fashion. And so he needed to be educated and taught and instructed in God's word and who Jesus is. And then after he received that, he's able to use that to point others to Jesus as well. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, it says that as he began to preach Jesus there in Damascus, as he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God, in verse 22, it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he was growing in his strength, which I believe is him studying God's word and learning more about it. And then it says that he proved that Jesus was the Christ. Proving means to instruct. It also carries with it the idea of putting together. And so what Saul did was he put together the story of the Old Testament and began to put together the story of the life and ministry of Jesus and put it all together to clearly communicate that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way that he preached Jesus was not his own experiences only, rather it was based on God's word, and he was studying and applying God's word as he instructed others as well. In order for us to go out and tell the world about Jesus, the one they don't believe in, we must know God's word as well. You see, now Saul had a little bit of an advantage. He was able to go in the synagogue and he was able to launch off of the Old Testament because they kind of collectively believed in the Old Testament. And now he's saying, you, you know the Old Testament, let's see how it points to Jesus. In our culture, you may have a conversation with someone that doesn't believe the Bible is valid at all. And so maybe that's not the starting point where you go, well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 23 and we'll look at this. Rather, you're teaching them who Jesus is based on the truth of God's word, even if you're not literally opening God's word in that first moment of a conversation. So everything that we share about who Jesus is, the way that we are grounded to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus is that we must study and know and apply God's word in our own life. So my question is this. If we don't study and if we don't apply and if we don't obey God's word, how in the world are we going to obey him and follow him? So I encourage you, don't think that you get your Bible study in on Sunday mornings through the sermon. Don't think that you get your Bible study in by going to your uh, Experiencing God or Equipping class. Don't, don't think that you get your Bible study in just by going to Hope Group. Rather, let us study God's Word throughout the course of the week on our own and in groups so we can study and know God's Word and then apply it to our lives. So my question is, are you studying God's Word? Are you studying the Scripture? And as you study God's word, are you seeking more information and that's where you stop? Or are you studying God's word in order to understand who he is and then apply it and obey it in your own life? So let's look at the third thing that Saul did, and that was he boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. Boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. It's incredible. Look at verse 20. After he spent a few days with the disciples in Damascus, the key word here is immediately. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. You see, 
Saul, from studying God's word, from his encounter with the Lord Jesus, understood that Jesus is not just a great teacher, he is the son of God, he is the Messiah, he is the promised one, he is God. And he began to preach that fact boldly and immediately. He didn't wait until he had gone to seminary. He didn't wait until he got his preaching ordination papers. He immediately began to preach and teach who Jesus is. I don't know when you came to faith. I don't know whether you were a young kid or an older person or when you came to faith, but maybe remember back when you trusted in Jesus. Many of us, as soon as we became a follower of Jesus, had a desire to go out and tell others about Jesus. Sadly, though, oftentimes that zeal to tell others about Jesus begins to wane in our lives. Maybe you've even heard somebody who just came to faith and he's always preaching about Jesus and you heard somebody go, well, just give him a, few, a little bit of time. He'll chill out. He'll mellow out. The reality is we shouldn't chill out and mellow out. We should have a desire to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, whether we've been a, a follower of Jesus for one day or one decade or 50 years, you know, anything in between. Let us go and preach the name of Jesus. I want us to look at verses 27 and 28. Verses 27 and 28 recount what took place in Damascus and tells what happened in Jerusalem. In 27, uh, Barnabas is telling the disciples about what, G what, what Saul has done in Damascus. And then we see that he continued that pattern in Jerusalem. And here's what it says in 27 and 28. As Barnabas is telling the apostles about, about Saul, he says that at Damascus, Saul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And because of that, then in verse 28, it says that he had the ability to be with the disciples and did things in Jerusalem. And as he's in Jerusalem, he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. May that define us as disciples. That we are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, much like what Howard said a moment ago, that we would proudly tell others about Jesus. You see, Paul's boldly preaching the name of Jesus, clearly defines his entire ministry. Saul, Paul, wherever he went, was consistently preaching Jesus to whoever he came across. Remember he said in one of his letters, I, I become all things to all people in order that some may come to faith in Jesus. Where was Saul's confidence? How was Saul able to be so bold in preaching Jesus? Some of us go, well, it's easy. Like, we saw how zealous he was earlier, right? Like, he was on a rampage to go get all those people and round them up, and he was doing it for God, and he, was, he, was, he had this personality that just drives him. Well, that's what happened whenever he preached Jesus. Well, maybe that's a smidgen, a part of it, but the reality, I don't know why I said smidgen, but I've said it twice today. Uh, the, the, the reality is that's not the main reason that he's boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, it's because his confidence is in God, he's grounded in the truth of God's word, and therefore he is propelled out by God to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. You see, you don't have to be a preacher to proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't have to be uh, an evangelist to proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't have to be a missionary to proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't have to be a seminary professor to proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't have to be a hope group leader to proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't have to be an elder to proclaim the name of Jesus. All disciples of Jesus are called to go out and tell others about Jesus. 
And so whenever he's proclaiming the name of Jesus, that's not the word for preaching. It's just in his everyday life, he's telling others about Jesus. Our confidence in evangelism or telling others about Jesus should be in Scripture and in who God is, not our plans, not our skills, but in God. My question for you is this, when is the last time that you boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus to someone else? I'm not saying when's the last time you argued with them about something the scripture teaches, but that's important to stand firm on the scripture. But I'm saying when's the last time you boldly proclaimed to a friend or a coworker or to a family member or shared the gospel with someone? May we as a church be known as a people who boldly proclaims the name of Jesus. But guys, we're not going to do that unless we are grounded in Scripture, and we're not going to do that unless we are coming to the Lord boldly, asking Him to give us the ability to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. May we get on our hands and knees, may we posture ourselves in a way asking God to grant us His boldness in order that we might make Christ no. So let's boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Another aspect of what Saul did is found here in the fact that he made disciples. We are to make disciples. In other words, that's the goal or purpose of proclaiming the name of Jesus. We don't proclaim the name of Jesus to look smart. We don't proclaim the name of Jesus to win arguments. We don't proclaim the name of Jesus to prove somebody else is wrong. We don't proclaim the name of Jesus because that's simply what's expected of us. Rather, we proclaim the name of Jesus for the glory of God and that others may come to that saving faith as well to bring him glory. So to make disciples means that we evangelize and tell others about Jesus. To make disciples means that we're growing in our faith and we're learning from each other and we're, we're being discipled by each other. And the reason I identify making disciples in Saul's life is because look at verse 25. In verse 25, whenever he is on the verge of being um, uh, a plot against him to kill him in Damascus, in verse 25 it says, but his disciples took him by night and they let him down through the wall. Look at that phrase, it says, his disciples. And I think it's interesting because this quickly, in Saul's ministry, he's already making disciples. Now, uh, on one hand, let me just kind of quickly explain this. We don't have really time to unpack this. But on one hand, it looks like it's just a matter of a few days or a few weeks because it tells what happens in Damascus. And then it says in, uh, verse, 20, it says in verse 23, when many days had passed, he gets out of Damascus. 26, he goes to Jerusalem. But the reality is there probably is more like about three years that transpires here. You're like, what, what are you basing that on? Write down on your notes and look at it later. You can go to uh, Galatians chapter, let me get to it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 18. Tells, Paul tells his story about once he came to faith that he actually went to Arabia and spent three years growing in his faith before he went back to Jerusalem. But either way, there's three years or less that transpires from his salvation to his preaching the gospel to him having disciples. And the point being this. We are called to be a disciple who makes disciples. And it doesn't matter how far along in your faith you are, you should be making it your goal to make disciples for Jesus. We need to follow Saul's example and make disciples 
every disciple, not just the professional, not just the pastors, not just the superstar Christians, whoever they may be, we are all to make disciples. A couple ways at our church that we, program, as far as programs are concerned, make disciples or seek to make disciples is through our equipping classes and through what we call D groups or discipleship groups. I happen to be in both of those and I can see the value of both of those. I'm experiencing God this year in our equipping classes and that's just been an exciting process to not only learn more about who God is but to literally experience him, grow in my faith, be sharpened by that with discussion that takes place in our small groups on Sunday mornings and then also I'm a part of a D group where there's three of us that get together, three guys on a weekly basis to hone each other's uh, discipleship and to encourage one another. We have been given a task by Jesus himself to go and make disciples. And to make disciples means that what we learn, we have to put into practice and then teach others as well. So that being a disciple involves both beliefs and actions which make it reproducible. My challenge to us as a church is may we be known as a church who makes disciples who make disciples. Now, those are kind of the pieces that come together to make Saul into a disciple that God's calling him to be. But I want to point out a couple of other things along the way. And that is, the next thing on your, your sermon note says, expect difficulties along the way. To say difficulties in the life of Saul is putting it lightly. In this account, we see two different times within the first three years of his salvation that there is a plot on his life and he narrowly escapes, including one time on a basket through a wall, right? And the other time by getting on a ship and going off to his hometown of Tarsus. There's plots on his life. He's stoned later in his ministry. He gets, uh, gets on a boat that has a shipwreck. And he's at other times where people attempt to take his life. The reality is this. God has promised, which is not a promise I want, but he has promised Saul that he was going to experience this. Look back in, in Acts chapter nine, uh, 9, verse 16. Whenever Saul comes to salvation... Jesus says, I will show him, talking about Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So part of being a disciple, maybe not to the extent that Saul did, but part of being a disciple is suffering for the name of Jesus. We won't face the same hardships he did, but we will face some kind of hardships if we faithfully follow Jesus. So, if you're a follower of Jesus... If you're doing these things we've talked about this morning, then expect, anticipate, don't go asking for it, but anticipate that hardships will come your way. But as hardships come along the way, I want us to see what this summary verse will do, us in, do for us in verse 31. We can experience the peace of the Lord. In our life, whatever we're facing, difficulty or otherwise, we can and we should anticipate experiencing the peace of the Lord. Look in verse 31. Like I said, it's kind of a summary verse. It doesn't just apply to the life of Saul right here. It's kind of collectively saying what's happened over the last couple of chapters. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I want us to see that the word here in verse 31 is church singular. 
And yet it talks about three different areas, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So what, what, what Luke, who's writing this down, is referring to is the church universal, the church as a whole, not just the local church, but the reality is that the church as a whole, the collection of all local churches, are experiencing peace of the Lord. Some commentators, as I read, said, well, yeah, they're experiencing the peace of the Lord because Saul, who had been the great persecutor of the church, is no longer persecuting the church, so there's great peace. But then other commentators pointed out that's true, but the reality is there's other people that are persecuting them, and we know more persecution's coming. And so the reality is probably less about peace from persecution, rather peace inwardly. Now, whatever our circumstances may be, a right relationship with the Lord gives us peace, Right? A right relationship with the Lord allows us to face whatever obstacles come our way and have his peace and his comfort. Peace is through a right relationship with God through Christ. My question is, do you have peace in your life? Has there been a time in your life where you've acknowledged that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness of your sins, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus' finished work on the cross as he died in your place and as he was resurrected three days later, that if we trust in him and not our own works, that we can experience salvation? The reason the church had peace and the reason you and I can have peace is because peace that comes from the Lord who makes us right with him through Jesus Christ. It says here, as you read the rest of 31, that their peace came through that right relationship with the Lord, yes, but their peace and their strength comes because they feared the Lord and they had comfort from the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to have a respect, to have a reverence, to have an awe, to see him for who he is. I, I like to think of it this way, to have fear of the Lord is to be aware of his great and his power and then it says that they had comfort of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is our comforter he is our consoler he is the one that encourages us he's the one that brings us confidence and then it says that they were being built up how are they being built up does that mean that they're just becoming more in number perhaps but there's a different word for that there's the word multiplied so what does it mean to be built up to be built up by the lord means that we grow in wisdom affection grace virtue holiness and blessedness so my question for us is this are we living our relationship with the Lord in such a way that we're experiencing his peace because we are walking in fear and reverence of him, allowing the Holy Spirit to come in our life and comfort us, guide us, and direct us in order that we might be made more and more like Jesus? May we live a life in a way that we faithfully revere and follow Jesus, finding our comfort in him that we're built up to be all that we're meant to be, that we might experience a multiplication as well. My prayer is that we would grow as a church healthy, and this verse tells us how we can and should grow in that health. As a church, all the time, you'll hear us say that it's our desire to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. 
And the only way that we can live that out is if we're living a life of discipleship. And the only way that we can live a life of discipleship is if we're allowing God to do his work in and through us, changing us into the person that he desires us to be. And so my question for you this morning is, in the context of all of that, as we've looked at the message this morning, in what ways is the Holy Spirit leading you to live out the sermon from this morning? For some of you, you need to say yes to Jesus. Trust in him for salvation. Turn from your own ways and your own plan and believe in him for salvation and walk with him. For some of you, you need to join this church, or maybe you need to sign up for the next membership class. Maybe you need to put on your connection card. You want to learn more about that. For some of you that are members of this church, we need you, and you need us. We need to all lean in and be faithful members of this church family. For some of you, it could be that the Lord's prompting you to say, hey, you need to be studying my word. You need to allow my word to, to, to impact all that you do. For some of us, we need to get out there and begin to proclaim the name of Jesus wherever we go. You know, Howard used that illustration of the football game. And like, what we don't want to say is don't enjoy a good football game. Like, I enjoy good football games. That's why I struggled a little bit last night watching a game. But I like watching football, and it's okay to yell and have fun with it. But the reality is, is my passion driving towards something I enjoy to do and my hobby, or is my passion for the Lord, and therefore I love to have a hobby of telling others about Jesus. May we pray for boldness to preach and proclaim the name of Jesus. And along the way, may we see that we have a specific task to go and make disciples. And as we make disciples, may we remember that we constantly need to be discipled ourselves as well. I don't know how the Lord is at work in your life this morning, but I do know this. If you don't know Jesus, today can be the day of salvation. If you do know Jesus, he's calling you and I to be faithful disciples in the various ways that we've looked at this morning. I would encourage you that you would take the next few moments and pray and sing and reflect and maybe come to the altar and pray or come and pray with me. I'll be down front here. Maybe you need to put your response on your connection card and drop that in the offering plate when it's passed in just a moment. But let us hear from the Lord this morning. May we be guided and comforted by his Holy Spirit and say yes to him. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and after the prayer is over with, we'll sing a couple of songs together. As I said, I'll be here at the front if you'd like to come and pray with me. We'll stand, we'll sing together as church families, and offering plates will be passed in a moment. If you came prepared to do that, then you can use that plate. If you need to drop anything else in there to communicate with the church office, that's available as well. Let me pray for us.